In our first reading today, we hear about the plight of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, during the oppression that happened when they had been conquered by Alexander the Great and in the next generation under the king Antiochus, who was seeking to eradicate or erase the entire identity of what it meant to be a member of the Jewish people, to have their own identity, their own sense of worship and relationship to God. They tried to eliminate and to erase all of that. They said we should just become one single new society together that follows a different way rather than the way of the Lord. And what was brought up in this moment in time was that there was a need to stand up and to say, no, I'm not going to follow this. Instead, I'm going to stand up for my faith. I'm going to express that I do, in fact, believe what I have purported to believe, what I have said that is my heritage and my faith. And in those moments, there was torture, agony, and death. So in this time, we encounter, we encounter a mother and her seven sons who were reported or turned in for not following this new way. And instead of giving in, capitulating, saying that this really doesn't matter, they stood up and said, no, this is my heritage, this is my history, this is who I am. I'm part of God's people. And for the Jewish people and for the Israelites, part of what was uh, in the following of the kosher laws and the diets and such, they did not eat pork. And so eating pork and eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was something that was, uh, it was something that was an affront or an act that showed that they were willing to make accommodations or to say that they were no longer worshiping the one true God, but instead they could make do and live in this new world that was proposed. But they stood up and they said, no, we would rather die. We would rather become martyrs to stand up for the truth than to just simply give away our heritage, to give away our faith. And so each of them ultimately died as a result. Subsequently, the Maccabees uh, rose up and they were able to overthrow and they were able to uh, have autonomy and freedom again in the kingdom of Israel after some long, hard-fought battles. It's one of those things that is helpful for us to consider in the context of our own lives when we experience challenges and such, when we get 
asked about whether or not we make accommodations to our life of faith, whether we make exceptions to how we choose to live our faith, or whether we will stand up and stand fast and say, no, in following what God has commanded, in following the way in which the Lord has shaped and formed me, can I live, will I live differently as a result of that? Even when perhaps it's unpopular or difficult. In, sometimes when we get to a place in our lives where we have a chance to reflect, we can think about what perhaps are some of the things that we live for? What are some of the sources of joy within our lives? Perhaps even the relationships that we know, that we acknowledge as being important, substantial, life-giving, ways in which we're connected to others. Sometimes we see it very closely and sometimes we don't. Sometimes, even if we perhaps feel a bit depressed or isolated and we think that we are alone, it doesn't take all that much time or effort to be able to look and to see that we matter to someone and someone, in fact, matters to us. That the Lord doesn't leave us isolated and purely individual, but we are given as part of a community, as part of a family, as part of a family of faith. And so there's always something, there's always a reason when we ask that question, what is it that I'm living for? What is it that makes my life important? What do I schedule my day and my priorities around? But the other side of this type of reflection is one that Archbishop Charles Chaput, who uh, retired a few years ago from leading the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, he recently wrote a, a short book where he called Things Worth Dying For. And he said, what are the things that are important enough in our context or in our life? What are the things that we would hold up and we would say, this is something that I could give my life for, that I would spend my life, that it would be a gift. If I was called or given the grace or the capacity to live or to become a martyr, what would be worth it? And he considers some of those as he just reflects upon what does it mean when we know what is worth dying for, it helps us better savor and understand and appreciate what it is that we live for. This month of November is a time in which we acknowledge and we remember those who have died, those who have gone before us. And, and we, we pray for and we hope for and we uh, anticipate that joyful reunion that we would have when we would have the opportunity to be together again in God, in heaven, in the experience of the communion that he offers to us. But there's things that we can choose, we can often make choices in which we place ourselves at the center and we say, what is good for me and how can I best improve or make my life better. But when we think about what it is that's worth dying for, whether that's a dying to self, having to choose something that is selfless instead of selfish, whether it's doing something that goes beyond a demand that I'm comfortable making, that I would normally be comfortable making of myself, but I rise to an occasion and I say, this is where 
I am called to live, to witness, to give, and to spend and share my life as a gift. All of that becomes part of what helps us to recognize and rejoice and revel and savor in what gives our life that true freedom that gives our lives the meaning, the love, the grace that we have and that we experience. And that that's something that's meant for us to be seen, to get a glimpse of that in our own relationship of faith, our own relationship with God. Because that's where we encounter his grace, his strengthening, his love. One of the things that can come up within our lives that we sometimes will, that we can sometimes struggle with is we can recognize that our heart at times ends up divided or temptations or things come up and we end up choosing sin. We fall away from God or we raise up obstacles between ourselves and God in our relationships. And what's helpful for us to consider in our own spiritual lives and lines of faith is that, you know, when we choose sin, sin then creates a wound. And the wound then creates a scar. And so for us, when we've fallen into sin, we know that our Lord is a forgiving God. We know that we go to confession, we bring our sins, we bring what we carry to the Lord, and the Lord is able to lift that weight off of our hearts and souls, that sins certainly can be taken away and forgiven as we approach the throne of grace, as we approach Jesus' saving gaze. But oftentimes when sin leaves a wound, that wound begets more sin. It, gives, it tempts us or it pulls us, it, gives, it makes space within our heart in which, in which end, we end up choosing sin again and again and again. And when we end up in a place where we're struggling with a pattern or a habit of sin, we end up having to show up to the Lord, asking not just for him to take away the sins, but to have him wash and cleanse, to have him be the one that takes that wound and brings healing to it. But even when a wound is healed, wounds on our bodies oftentimes leave scars or marks that tell us areas perhaps that we can look and we can notice. This is where I this is where I encountered a hurt or an accident or something before within my life. And sometimes we have scars within our hearts or within our lives, some of which are visible or some of which are not visible. But the grace that we have in acknowledging the scars and bringing them to the Lord is the fact then that we allow Jesus the ability and the power to redeem the scars. Jesus doesn't take away the scars, but he redeems them. That they don't become worthless, but even not just that they have meaning, but that they become part of the way in which as we encounter the grace of God, as we encounter the forgiveness that enters into our lives and how we become changed by that gift and that grace. 
it becomes a moment in which the wounds themselves, those scars that remain, even as they are healed and as they are redeemed, as they are brought to the Lord for his grace, they become part of the means, part of our own story of salvation. When we gather and we acknowledge and we look and see the crucifix in the church, part of what we see is what our sins, the sins of the whole world, did to Jesus. And yet, at the moment of resurrection, where Jesus' own body is glorified, when he appears to the apostles, they notice there's still the wound marks in his hands. There's still the nail marks in his feet and the wound in his side. Those scars are still there even after them, after they have been glorified. And, they, and those wounds, the way in which Jesus suffered out of his love for us becomes the way in which we are able to experience his grace, to experience his love, to experience his saving work within our lives. So as we turn to the Lord today, and as we acknowledge where we are, it gives us a chance to be able to acknowledge and give thanks to the things that we hold up and say, these are things that I live for within my life. And even more when we get challenged to consider, these are things that would be worth dying for, that are worth dying for in my life love of God, love of family, love of friends, a way in which I make a contribution to the world. There can be ways and moments and times in which all of that becomes a pouring out of our hearts, a pouring out of our lives, and we see that there is a fruitfulness and a gift from, that type of, from the type of martyrdom or sacrifice that can show up within our lives. And yet, as we turn to the Lord, we let him be the one who saves, him be the one who forgives, him be the one who heals, and him be the one who redeems what we offer. We make the offering of who we are, and we let the Lord's grace be what transforms. Amen. <laughs>